Hello, welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Medium Cool Pod. It's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. And also remember to please like, subscribe, follow wherever you're listening to this. It will help us. Uh, if you can leave a rating or review, if you feel so inclined, we would really appreciate it. Again, content creators thrive on this and you're, you know, consuming content. So hopefully you will support those that you love. Uh, all that said, today's episode is going to be about uh, five movies on Netflix that I think you should see. And I'm not I'm not trying to argue that uh, you have seen them. Um you know, there are a lot of great movies on Netflix. You know, you have The Irishman, uh, Uncut Gems, Phantom Thread, as of now, that is, uh, Blade Runner, The Final Cut, which is my favorite version of the film, uh, Taxi Driver. I remember Big Fish being great, though I need to rewatch it. And the list could go on and on and on. And there are cool horror movies like the original Exorcist, the original Nightmare on Elm Street, and it follows uh, classics like Forrest Gump, Saving Private Ryan, and Stand By Me. I mean, not to mention the many, you know, I mean, what filmmakers do we want to name? Quentin Tarantino, Christopher Nolan. I mean, all these guys have tons of their movies on, uh, have, yeah, tons of their movies on Netflix. Uh, there's a lot going on, but what I wanted to do is choose a few movies that maybe you haven't seen, or at least it's been a long time since you have seen them and you should rewatch them. Uh, you know, they are, they're not under the radar picks by any means, I would say. I mean, they made millions of dollars in the box office, but some of these go back to when I was like four years old. You know what I mean? So if you're a newer generation or you're somebody who didn't really go back in your movie viewing, um, or especially those of you who got into movies, you know, in the past few years, there's just such a wealth of, uh, of, of movies for you to dig into. And so really this list is for everybody, especially if you're just someone who's just looking for something to watch. So I'm going to be focusing on Netflix today. And, uh, in the future, I might do some stuff with, you know, HBO max, Hulu, like other popular streaming services where I can tell you some, you know, a, a few movies that, uh, that you might pick up. On and, and 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 the good thing for me is these things, uh, you know, uh, change over time. You know, they drop stuff off Netflix and add new stuff. So I'll be able to do this every once in a while just to give you guys, you know, some suggestions. So uh, yeah, uh, but before I do that, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, some more TV shows I'm watching because I've actually had some feedback um, on people talking about the shows, and I just want to give you. I want to let everybody know what I'm watching right now, and then I'll get to the movies. So uh, currently, <clears throat> I'm watching, I think, four shows, but each of them have kind of their own thing. So I'm still watching Barry. I'm caught up to present, but I have to watch it weekly because it's currently coming out. So uh, every Sunday night, uh, you know, it comes out, and I usually watch it Monday or Tuesday. Uh, so I'm, I'm able to keep up with Barry. I am current. And uh, there's also a show called um, uh, We Own This City. It is by the gentleman who, I'm spacing his name right now, but it's by the gentleman that made, that wrote and created The Wire, which is just one of the all-time great shows. And uh, this show is, um, you know, with The Wire, it felt very TV. This is like early 2000s, I believe. I don't think it went into the 90s. I think the early, it was like super early 2000s. Uh, but it's right at that cusp. Everyone still looks 90s as fuck to me. And like the first season, especially. Uh, Idris Elba in his fucking like big shoulder pad suit. But anyways, if you can if you can get past some of those kind of aesthetic, uh, there there are kind of aesthetics in the wire that um, date it. 
But, dude, it is not about that. Holy fuck. I remember watching that, and after a few episodes, I was so hooked, and I just binged the whole thing. It's still one of my favorite shows of all time. So when I realized that he had made other shows, which I just never looked into, why? I have no fucking clue. And he made uh, a show called uh, uh, We Own the City, and it's on HBO right now. It's airing. It comes out every Monday, and uh, it has all kinds of people in it. John Bernthal, probably the most famous. And what I love about it is... Um, Unlike The Wire, I'm typing and trying to talk at the same time because I'm going to pull up We Own This City so I can give you some more information. Um, but the uh, the right David Simon is the guy I was trying to think of that created the show. And uh, John Bernthal uh, plays essentially a cop that in like 2003 or so uh, in Baltimore, you know, becomes kind of a beat cop and he's out on the street and he's doing pullovers and all this. But uh, the person that's training him is basically like, yo, Forget everything you learn. Forget all that sensitivity training. Forget all that, you know, racial awareness and civil rights, blah, 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 blah. This is Baltimore. You know, you got to do what you got to do. And he starts teaching him some really, really bad habits. And then, um, and for those of you who don't know, David Simon was like someone who worked Baltimore. You know, I, I, I forget if he's a detective or a, uh, a cop or like, I forget his exact story, but I know he was involved in it. And a lot of it's where The Wire came from. Uh, but he kind of recurringly uses Baltimore as a setting, and uh, why not? He knows it so well. So anyways, in the show, John Bernthal starts off as someone you might see as a relatively respectful human. You watch him kind of degrade over time to where he's training people the same way he was trained. Um, but the best part about this, though, is in The Wire, you have people like, you know, uh, like McNulty and and all, all the all the cast of characters and this there are very few characters. John Bernthal's probably closest to a character. Um, there are several characters at play here, and what we get is uh, a lot of discussion about what it means to be a cop and whether you know the. Uh, uh, I don't want to say whether cops are good or bad, but let, let's just say this. It's really tackling a lot of like current issues and tackling them in a very intelligent and interesting way where, you know, we're watching these people work and we're watching them do bad things. Um, and they're also justifying it. But the thing is, those justifications are, are shitty. They suck. But at the same time, you see how the system works and why they're doing it that way. And I just I don't know. I just think it's like such an interesting education on why things are happening right now and and what is going on. The story is interesting to me. Uh, it never by any means like tries to praise cops and nor does it. Uh, I mean, one someone who might be like a Blue Lives Matter person, or whatever, might be like they're trying to you know discredit cops or whatever. And I you know I'm just like way on the other end of this shit. So uh, and so as someone who's just like you know super progressive basically i'll just put it that way in the most diplomatic terms um you know i i watch this and and what i like is uh we get kind of almost an education on what is happening behind the scenes and it doesn't really uh there are justifications from everyone you have you know you have the uh the the police union leader at one point talking to a uh um uh oh god what is it called uh department of justice uh, like civil rights person, and they have this interesting conversation where the civil rights person is just like, "Hey, like this cop that you are protecting has had so many complaints and done so much crazy shit. Why are you protecting them?" And they're like, "Cause they pay me to protect them." And they go into this like long justification about how it's all political and it's all this and that. But it's like, even if I don't agree with that, it's like, "Fuck, this is 
definitely how the other side thinks about this. I just find it very fascinating is what I'm getting at. And I've been watching it weekly just when the episode comes out, throw it on and give it a shot. And then finally, uh, my wife and I have been uh, watching, this isn't the last one, I say finally as in like finally we're watching something again together, Uh, but it's been a while since we've actually had time to just sit down and watch stuff together. So we're actually watching Legion Season 3, the FX show. I think Legion is, I can't think of a better network show, to be honest. I mean, what other show is so creative and so interesting? And uh, I mean, I love that it, I mean, I love X-Men and you have a direct tie into Professor X and, and all that because Legion, uh, David, who is Legion, um, is Professor X's son. And in the comics, if I remember correctly, and uh, you know, don't correct me if I'm wrong because I don't really give a fuck. You can go Google it. Um, but I'm pretty sure that uh, Legion is the one that uh, essentially kicks off the Age of Apocalypse. And I'm not talking about the movie. I'm talking about the classic comic, uh, you know, the, the big comic uh, Marvel thing so uh it was uh, uh the big marvel event or whatever it was a big deal and so but that's like all legion was was he was like this guy that basically much like in the show you know uh they they are afraid he's gonna cause the end of the world and so uh in the comics he almost does but uh what an interesting character to take and then this is the same guy that made that he's the same guy that made the fargo tv series i believe and uh, he's a big fan of David Lynch. And I remember watching the first season of, of Legion and being like, man, this is like a much more accessible, like, David Lynch. Like, there's just some, like, weird shit going on, the way the story's told and, you know, how audio's used. Like, you know, I mean, it didn't feel like David Lynch was making it, but it felt like someone, whoever's created this, whoever's making this, loves David Lynch. <clears throat> Excuse me. And and it ended up being true. And I feel, I feel that more as it goes on, man. Uh, it is a fucking weird show, and I love it. But the show that I'm watching by myself that I'm able to actually binge is uh, the new uh, show Winning Time. I'm going to pull this up while I'm out. Uh, here it is. It's Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. It has uh, John C. Riley in it. Uh, Quincy Isaiah, I believe, is the one that plays um, Yeah, Magic Johnson. You know, you have Jason Clark and Gabby Hoffman. I mean, all a, a great cast. And... Uh, the way this is shot is so interesting because, you know, often whenever you have movies that take place in a different period, things are pretty exaggerated and they also look really clean or they try to uh, emulate that old style of whatever's happening and uh, like visually. And then this one actually at times looks like they straight up used camcorders like it's weird, man. And, 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 and it feels kind of gimmicky, and there's times where they break the fourth wall and they're talking directly to us, and that feels gimmicky. But aside from those moments, like, this is really fun to watch. I'm actually having a great time with it. I'm on episode three right now, but I'm, like, trying to beeline it as quickly as I can. I've been very busy, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, but, yeah, so those are the shows I'm watching. If you're watching any of those or have seen them, by all means, please hit me up. Let me know what you think. Uh, but I, I feel ready to jump into these Netflix, uh, these movies. So I'm going to give you five Netflix movies. I'll probably have some stories to tell about some of them. So I'm going to call this episode Storytelling with Austin. Five movies on Netflix you should see. Just watch. That's what the title's going to be. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to name the movie. I'm going to give you all the kind of... 
objective information, you know, directed bys, written by, so on. And then uh, I will give you three reasons to watch it, much like I did with those TV shows several episodes back. And I'm just going to talk about three reasons. This is going to keep me on, on pace because you guys know I can ramble. So, uh, yeah, let's get to it. Here are five movies on Netflix you should see. All right, everybody, I'm going to start <clears throat> with the movie that is the oldest, and I'm going to work chronologically forward with my picks, okay? I did, um, I won't call it a deep dive on Netflix, but I did I did take quite a bit of time to kind of look through a lot of their suggested picks, and I even went to certain genres and was just digging through what they have, recognizing that, you know, it might not show me something uh, that it might show you, and I may have seen that movie, and uh, it may be really good, so... Uh, and I kind of just, I kind of steered away from just like Netflix movies. I mean, there are some really awesome ones and I wanted to put some on there. Um, and there were some I didn't, hadn't even seen that I was like, man, it'd be interesting just to pitch some of these. But then it was like, what's the point? <laughs> like, why would I recommend them to you? I haven't seen them. So anyways, uh, I'm going to go ahead and start though. The first of five movies is, and I, I, I started off real quick. <clears throat> I'm not done with my preface. You just sit tight. Um, I, I, I started off wanting to have a diverse, like a, like a variety, right? So my first pick will be a perfect example of that, though I would have put it on here anyways. Um, but then as I went on, if I was truthful to myself, I feel like they kind of start to get more into, like they start to funnel into a very Austin central or centered, uh, list, but we'll go with it. So my first pick is actually when Harry met Sally, from 1989, it was directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron, and the cast is Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan as the two leading stars, along with Carrie Fisher, Bruno Kirby, a whole slew of other people. Release date, July 21st, 1989, with a budget of $16 million, box office, $92.8 million. Holy shit, guys, that's a big number for a movie like this. Uh, it's streaming on Netflix and HBO Max, uh, coincidentally. But it is on Netflix. You should definitely go check this out if you haven't seen it. Don't let the rom-com part of it scare you away. This this movie is great cinema, I think. Super well done. Very, very good movie. It's about uh, Harry and Sally who have known each other for, you know, so many years and uh, are very good friends, but they fear sex would ruin their friendship. And uh, why does that come up? Because uh, there are times where they kind of uh, start flirting and they wonder if they should date. And they always come back to, no, it's going to ruin everything. We're great friends. It's going to ruin everything. And, of course, you know, this sounds like a, a rom-com, right? Like there, there's always some reason you can't be together, right? Well, this is just, just naturally works. It's great. And uh, <clears throat> my three reasons, the first that I think you should watch this is the dialogue and the delivery. They go hand in hand. When Harry Met Sally feels like, uh, I don't know, Annie Hall or something. I've always said this is kind of an Annie Hall clone, but it has a happy ending. So I guess spoiler there if you haven't seen it, but who cares? It's awesome. Uh, so it's like Annie Hall if it had a, a happy ending. And uh, it's, you know, it also ties into that kind of Annie Hall style with the dissection of relationships, the constant highlighting of idiosyncratic thoughts and behaviors, that very quick-witted humor, uh, which is a very Billy Crystal thing. We'll, we'll talk about that here uh, soon. But, um, you know, it's all the inside baseball of relationships with a cinematic rom-com twist. And, uh, you know, then there's Meg Ryan, of course, who is at the top of her game. 
Uh, this is when she was like big shit, right? And then, uh, and I'm even a fan of stuff like You've Got Mail. Who am I? Who have I become? I'm not saying that's a bad movie. I'm just saying like I usually hate movies that are that way. They're so formulaic, and there's just like this template, and I feel like people just like kind of plug stuff into the template. But man, I actually like that movie too. But not as much as this one. This one's really great. Uh, so Meg Ryan's at the top of her game though, and then you have Billy Crystal who uh, may not have ever been better. Honestly, like he's so good here. And if you want to see why Crystal's a legend, uh, I, I encourage you to watch or rewatch When Harry Met Sally. No joke. Uh, he's really great. And writer Nora Ephron, uh, you know, hit it out of the park with this script. And uh, basically, uh, we'll just say my second reason is what really, I think, helped bring it to life. Um, but uh, the, again, dialogue and delivery is top notch. You can even go to YouTube and watch clips. I encourage you not to watch the New Year's Eve clip just because that's such a that's such a great moment. Actually, well, we'll get there. Actually, I don't know why I just said that because uh, it kind of ties into my notes, so I just ruined that whole point. But the point is, it's not going to ruin anything. It's just uh, I, no matter how many times I watch it, and we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Stop it. You're leading me on. All right, reason two, Rob Reiner. Okay, I mentioned Nora Ephron hit it out of the park, but my second reason brought brought this to life. Uh, Nora Ephron's script is awesome, uh, but Rob Reiner, this was the era of Rob of Rob Reiner. Uh, I mean, we have uh, you know I mean, he did his best work, the best work of his career during this time, and arguably it's one of the probably the best straight runs any filmmakers ever had. I'm pretty sure Joe said that in the past too. You know, he had uh, this is Spinal Tap and the Sure Thing early on, and then he blows up after that with Stand by Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, and A Few Good Men. Holy shit! Like what? Like what? A great, you know, uh, list of movies. Whether you liked them or not, the point is they were huge. And and um, you know, the latter group, starting with uh, Stand by Me on. You know, they were massive successes, and not only are they still iconic, they were and are incredibly influential. So they're just important films. Whether you like them or not, they just really fit in. I mean, you know, who, who doesn't know, you know, the uh, I'll have what she's having fake orgasm in the deli scene, right? Fucking no one doesn't know that scene. That's who. No one. Every single person in the this, at least the United States, at the very least, knows this shit. Like, we know that. Or the, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Like, that is, everyone knows that. Well, okay, actually, I know people that don't know this. Granted, they did grow up in another country, so maybe that's like, maybe they just didn't get that cultural thing. They're also not big movie people. The point is, uh, that that's a that's a thing from The Princess Bride. We know this, right? Or you can't handle the truth. Or the pie-eating vomit extravaganza and Stand By Me. There's all kinds of iconic stuff that comes out of Rob Reiner films at this time. And I mean, this guy made some shit, all right? But Reiner, during this era, is a reason to see when Harry met Sally. He's just too important. And then the third one, which I told you, like, don't watch the clip with the uh, New Year's Eve monologue. Uh, yeah, that monologue. But um, honestly, my number three is Harry's New Year's Eve monologue. <laughs> As I was talking, I'm like, wait, fuck, that's my, that's my third reason. But man, when, when Harry goes, I love that you get cold when it's 71 degrees out. I love that it takes you an hour and a half to order a sandwich. I love that you get a little crinkle above your nose when you think, uh, you know, I'm going nuts. I love that after I spend the day with you, I can smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love 
uh, that you're the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely, and it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize that you want to spend the rest of your life with someone, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. And I watched this clip today preparing for this, and it tears me up. And I don't know why, because I don't care how rom-commy this shit is. I love it. I don't know what it is about it. It might be Billy Crystal. It's the whole scene. There's just something about this that I really love. And plus, it is a rom-com, so fuck you. It's allowed to be this way. The point is, uh, When Harry Met Sally is really great. This is the kind of archetypal rom-com. It's a very traditional rom-com, but in the best way, and the way that the apartment is great, and the way that so many others uh, can be and have been, because it seems like their stories don't aren't just thrown onto a template, but that they were actually written to be this way, and they natu- they feel natural. Uh, not, not to mention that there are all these moments of When Harry Met Sally that are spliced in almost like documentary footage, like Talking Heads, where there are couples talking about when they met, and you know, how long they've been together and, you know, all these interesting love kind of like love stories that are tied into it. This is just a really great one of my favorite romance movies. Really, really great. So my second pick is uh, way later. All right. This goes all the way up to 2007, which, as I've said before, I think 2007 was the last truly great year of cinema where it's like, I mean, years are lucky to get one or two five-star movies out for me, let alone, you know, multiple. And in 2007, I could probably name between five and ten movies that I gave five-star ratings. That's how good that year was. And then after that, there's probably 15 four-and-a-halves or something. I don't know. I'm making that number up. But the point is, 2007 had some incredible shit, all right? And 2007 is also the year... Uh, that can uh, count for the movie I say is probably the best film of the decade, which is There Will Be Blood. That's not my pick, but I'm just saying uh, 2007 was great. Uh, But this one is a five-star movie to me. This is one of the greats of that decade as well, and in many ways. I wouldn't say it's in the running for movie of the decade by any means, but it's so great. It's called Michael Clayton. It's written and directed by Tony Gilroy. The cast is George Clooney, Tilda Swinton, Tom Wilkinson, and Sidney Pollack. Uh, release date was October 12th, 2007 with a budget of $21.5 million and at the box office it made $93 million. I'm sure the cast and the Oscar nominations really helped raise that number. Uh, this is also streaming on Netflix, of course, and it's, uh, it's about a law firm uh, that brings in its, quote, fixer to remedy the situation after a lawyer has break uh, has a breakdown while representing a chemical company that he knows is guilty in a multi-billion dollar class action suit. Uh, this is undeniably a thriller, everyone, okay? Uh, if you haven't seen it, but it is not an action movie, and that's a very important distinction. This is a, very, a much slower, uh, more dialogue-driven uh, type movie, but it has the tension of a thriller. It's like tightening a screw, this movie is incredible. Side note, the movie Nightcrawler, which was originally on this list as I was going through, uh, Nightcrawler is a film on Netflix that I almost chose, but Tony Gilroy's brother Dan Gilroy directed Nightcrawler. And uh, both of them have a common sensibility, though both films are very different in many ways. Uh, but if you do like Nightcrawler, I would encourage you to watch this. Again, they're two different filmmakers or whatever, but they have a, there's a certain sensibility to them and a look to them that I think you could say is comparable. They seem to have similar eyes and uh, similar interests. Nightcrawler is much more um, 
uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character in that is a real character, if you get my drift. Whereas in Michael Clayton, everyone just kind of seems real, and uh, it's great. So uh, the reason one to see Michael Clayton, the opening fucking monologue. Holy fuck. Tom Wilkinson delivers an incredible monologue. And he's not even on screen. We see visuals of empty meeting rooms and empty houses, office phones blinking. And Wilkinson's just going off on this frenetic and impassioned diatribe about, you know, being covered in embryo, uh, embryonic fluid and death and rebirth. And dude, he's going off about this shit. And it, it's incredible. It reminds me of like a more cinematic delivery of something like Andre Gregory, uh, his stories in my dinner with Andre or something. I mean, they are just, it is fascinating to listen to. And, um, it, it's just, it's that good. So, you know, if, if you do not, if you don't want to see the rest of this movie after the first two and a half minutes, which is what that opening monologue is about, uh, you're a lost soul. I don't know what to do for you. It's the greatest. Uh, probably one of my favorite openings of all time, if you can believe it. And, and, and Hey, I'm not huge on spectacle in terms of that like winning me over. So there are other spectacle movies that could really... I mean, uh, there's any number of James Bond movies. Some people would be like, oh, that's such a killer opening. I like This is my type of effective intro. Um, it is just really great. Reason number two, the performances. Everyone but especially George Clooney, Tilda Swinton, Tom Wilkinson, and Sidney Pollack. But everyone in this movie is incredible, all right? This is the this is like an actor's movie, right? This is like a movie that other actors watch, and they're like, man, how could I be better? Um, you know, it's one of those movies where the performances and the script, much like a movie like Glengarry Glenn Ross or something, is just tailored for these people to pull off gold. So needless to say, this is a dialogue-heavy movie, and like I said, this is a thriller. Um, you know, uh, but dude, it, it, I just cannot stress enough how good this movie is. I'm trying really hard not to spoil things and whatnot, but, uh, the performances are incredible. And, uh, of course the writing and the directing is great. And that obviously helps, but I feel like in the hands of these actors, it is something different. Uh, the third reason really is really simple. It's the look in the atmosphere. I mean, this movie has... All of that. And again, it's pretty much just a series of scenes with nonverbal storytelling or with dialogue. And it's not I, I don't think it's slow. I think it moves fairly quickly. Uh, but it's just it also is just one of those movies that gets you so, like grabs you because of this atmosphere and things that I don't know if I could feel the slowness like it just always has me. I love the look of Michael Clayton, though. I mean, you have these muted tones, these kind of cold or neutral color palettes pretty often. Uh, and the movie is anything but bland, like the color tone may imply. Um, uh, there is so much heat in this in terms of like how people are, are going to kind of win, so to speak, right, uh, with what's with the story that's being told. But man, uh, like the look of this is great. The sound of this is great. The performances are great. You need to see Michael Clayton. It's on Netflix. All right, so um, I'm going to hop on to uh, my third pick, and this is an unusual pick for me, actually, but I have, I have a pretty good reason for why, and it is called Let Me In from 2010. We've talked about this briefly on the show every once in a while it's brought up, but it's written and directed by Matt Reeves. It's a remake of Let the Right One In, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, the cast is Cody Smith-McPhee, who was most recently, that I saw at least, in The Power of the Dog. Uh, he was... Uh, he was great. Chloe Grace Moretz, Richard Jenkins, and Elias Codius. 
uh, Kateas. I don't remember how to say his name. I apologize. So uh, the release date was October 1st, 2010, with a budget of $20 million. It made $24.1 million. This is on Netflix. Not a huge success, but it made its money back, which is a success. And uh, probably explains why uh, Matt Reeves still continues to get bigger and bigger work. And uh, the synopsis is a bullied young boy befriends a young female vampire who lives a sec- in secrecy with her guardian. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Uh, if you've seen Let the Right One In, this is the same story. But I still think there's something here for you to watch. And uh, it's a remake, like I said, of Let the Right One In. It often gets a bad rap for being that remake because it's not as good as the original. And it's not. It pales in comparison. Um, but it's still good. And I think that's where I get tripped up. Um, director Matt Reeves has went on to do a lot of really uh, big movies that people would probably be more familiar with, or at least would have seen. More of you would have seen. Um, and I'll get to those here uh, shortly. But I think as a reboot goes, this is pretty good. So reason one, all right? Uh, it's a good remake. Like I said, we'll just continue that conversation. Even if it pales in comparison to the original, it's still good all right and the fact that an american movie does the stuff that is in this movie is automatically cool to me you know uh in some ways it feels almost important to me even though i don't think it actually is uh but I, you know it's pulling off a, a, an interesting story and is doing it well uh but i you know i saw this the year it came out and thought that it was surprisingly good for what it was not some sort of like five star i i might have given it a four star i don't remember three and a half or four and uh, part of it probably was because it's it's a movie that didn't need to be remade. It was remade uh, one year after Let the Right One In came to the States. So Let the Right One In came, uh, came out in 2008, came to the United States in 2009, I believe. And then this was made in 2010 because Let the Right One In was just like a big deal. So uh, fuck it. Go watch Let the Right One In, too. I don't care where you find it. I don't know where it is, uh, but go watch that. Anyways. Uh, but yeah, uh, let, let me in is, is good. And, uh, like I said, I saw it the year it came out. Um, but, uh, anyway, so it also has a look and tone all itself separating it from its predecessor. It does not look like let the right one is what I'm getting at. Uh, there's a very distinct style that I'll get to here momentarily. And my second reason, um, but there are also scenes that did not exist in the original. I believe they came straight from the book. Like they just added more to it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just think this is worth seeing, you know, I remember watching the horror movie wreck and, uh, thinking it was so great, but before that I'd actually seen the American remake, which was completely buried called quarantine. I think quarantine's fucking great too. It's just not as good as wreck, but it's like a, a movie I would watch anytime. Like it's very competently made. Uh, but it's just one of those movies you see at like gas stations or something on DVD. You know what I mean? Like it's just a movie that no one would ever choose because of how it's been, how it's kind of portrayed. Uh, but reason two for why you should watch Let Me In. Matt Reeves. Director Matt Reeves. Uh, you know, everything about Reeves is here. You know, uh, this is the guy that did Cloverfield in 2008. Let, uh, Let Me In in 2010, which is what we're talking about. But he also did the last two Apes movies, Dawn uh, of the Planet of the Apes and War for the Planet of the Apes. And then most recently, he did The Batman, which came out this year, and uh, I was a fan of. Reeves is a filmmaker that has a look to his films, a tone, a vibe, if you will. Um, I remember when Christopher Nolan started doing blockbusters with Batman Begins. And I remember by the time he got to Inception in 2010, actually, same year this movie we're talking about came out, I remember saying, this dude is changing the blockbuster game in a big way. 
And, uh, you know, I feel like Nolan has kind of fallen a little bit for me. I still like his movies. Don't get me wrong. And I actually really love Interstellar despite its problems. I recognize it as problems. Fuck off. My point is I love that movie. But Matt Reeves uh, very well could be the next guy to kind of take that baton and uh, continue in terms of changing the blockbuster landscape. Of course, this would probably be alongside Denis Villeneuve, who's also doing incredible work uh, with things like Dune uh, or Blade Runner 2049, which was incredible. So uh, I'm here for it, man. If those guys want to like start taking that Nolan baton, basically. And when I say Nolan baton, I don't mean that they're similar filmmakers. I mean, what I perceive Nolan to have done for blockbusters, these guys are just taking it further, I think. And so I'm totally here for it. He had to start somewhere and let me in as early enough for you to see where he started. And then uh, number three is an easy choice for me. It was the one I was going to put as number one, but I thought I'd wait for it. That's Richard, Richard Jenkins. Richard Jenkins is the fucking greatest. Holy crap. He is uh, He's in my next pick too movie. Um, but I kept him off of the reasons for that movie because I'm trying to get it all out here. But he is the greatest. Uh, you know, even movies that I think are bad that he's in, he is great. Like he's one of those guys that people know, but no one talks about him the same way they talk about fucking Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio or some major super, like super celebrity. Uh, but dude, he should be because as far as I'm concerned, Jenkins impresses me more than those two do. So, uh, Jenkins is just one of those guys that no matter what role he's playing, whether it's, you know, Burn After Reading or The Visitor um, or or uh, what was the one about the uh, amphibious monster and the woman like um, The Shape of Water, no matter like whatever he's in, he's always just fucking great. You know, I don't know. He's awesome. So, uh, yeah, that those are my three reasons. It's, it's a good remake uh, for Let Me In. It's a good remake. Matt Reeves. If you're following his newer stuff, uh, you know, with the Apes movies and the Batman and stuff, go back and watch this. You'll see all of his techniques and his style, um, you know, the same style that he brought to like Dawn of the Planet of the Apes or Batman. He's he had back here at this time. Is it as good as the remake? No, but it doesn't mean it's not worth seeing. Uh, and I encourage you to watch it uh, again. Richard Jenkins is just the greatest. All right, so my uh, my next movie, my other pick from uh, Netflix, is number four, is uh, <clears throat> Killing Them Softly from 2012, written and directed by Andrew Dominic, based on a novel called, uh, I forget how to pronounce this now, Kogan's Trade. It was uh, written by George V. Higgins. The cast is Brad Pitt, Ray Liotta, Richard Jenkins. Oh, yeah, Richard Jenkins. Why? Because he's the fucking greatest. Richard Jenkins, Scoot McNary, Ben Mendelsohn, uh, James Gandolfini, Sam Shepard, and a whole lot more great notable talent. Uh, the release date was November 30th, 2012. It had a budget of $15 million and it made $37.9 million. It is on Netflix right now. I can't tell you how much I want you guys to watch this if you haven't seen it. Uh, the synopsis, Jackie Kogan. Uh, I'm so I'm hung up on this last name thing. I feel like I should know this. I've just completely forgotten it because actually I actually haven't watched this movie in a while. This is one I need to rewatch. But Jackie Kogan is uh, is an enforcer hired to restore order after three dumb guys rob a mob a mob protected card game, causing the local criminal economy to collapse. Um, it's that's pretty much it. Uh, Brad Pitt plays this uh, this enforcer hired by essentially the mob, and um, uh, yeah. 
Scoot McNary and Ben Mendelsohn. And if in, uh, I only remember those two. I actually forget the third guy. So I'm telling you, based on what I know, this is already a choice. It can only be better from there. Uh, but anyways, uh, my, my first reason for why you should see this is Andrew Dominic, the director. He made The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford from 2007, also a five-star movie from 2007. All right, great year. Remember that. And uh, his writing uh, there and in with Killing Them Softly is second to none. This dude, the way he writes and then the way he shoots those scenes, it's kind of like, uh, it is not like Quentin Tarantino, but hear me out when I say this. I'll draw the parallel here. It's like watching a Quentin Tarantino movie, and you, you sit there, and you could read the script, but you're just like, who in the fuck could bring this to life? And then he does it, and you're like, oh, shit, he can, because he like knows exactly what he's visualizing when he's writing this shit. So you see something like Reservoir Dogs, and it's like, yeah, 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 this would be a cool like kind of gangster talkie movie, but dude, he fucking knocks it out of the park, or Pulp Fiction, or, I mean, any, I mean dude, Kill Bill, imagine reading that fucking script. Just being like, the fuck is going on? Who's going to actually do this? That fucking guy did it. What in the hell? So I, I say I say that to draw a parallel to uh, Andrew Dominic, who, you know, uh, writes this uh, this kind of uh, uh, neo-Western in The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. And you're just like, fuck, no one could pull this off like this guy. Because it feels like a completely modern movie, even though it's a period piece, you know, like he it's very much that Andrew Dominic style that uh, that breathing. Right. Because he's all about the way that characters are developed and, uh, you know, how he fits in his dialogue sequences, how he lets the film breathe. I mean, it really takes that combo of the guy who wrote the script and then he knows how to knock it out of the park. And that's the that is the parallel I was drawing with Tarantino is I feel like Tarantino does the same thing. Like who else could fucking figure out how to do his stuff right? But he knows because he wrote it. He knows what his vision is. Andrew Dominic's the same way. He may not be as uh as uh flamboyant as Tarantino in terms of how kind of big and wild his movies are. I feel like Dominic is way, way, way more grounded. But you can see his influences. Holy shit. I uh, I like Andrew Dominic a lot. And and uh, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford is one of my favorite westerns of all time. So like I said, five-star movie from 2007. There's one of them. So uh, reason two, the look of the film. This movie, Killing Them Softly, looks like it was plucked straight out of like fucking 1978 or something. You know, or even you could go to when like Michael Mann's Thief came out, '81, I think it was, where it still has that '70s look, but it looks a little more polished. Uh, of course, this still looks more modern than that, but I'm just saying there's a certain aesthetic to it. The way the lighting is, the way that darkness is kind of just allowed to exist. Um, you know, everything about it just rules, dude. And uh, you know, uh, my reason for number, my third reason. Actually, I'm going to just tell you what reason three is. I'll talk about two and three together because three will actually give me a, a, a way to talk about two. Uh, reason three is the poker heist scene. There are other scenes that may be better than this one, but this one is the most outwardly great. So it's not every day that I encourage people to actually watch a scene out of context. You know, uh, and and I truly mean. It. I say a lot like, "Go to YouTube and watch this." But, like, I really mean it this time, okay? Um, if you have not seen this and you don't feel like you actually have a reason to see the movie, like you're not motivated to go watch it, go to YouTube and type in the killings or killing them. I almost said the killing. Uh, killing them softly, poker heist, all right? And that should pop it up, I'm sure. And watch that scene, all right? Scoot McNary and Ben Mendelsohn are playing the heist duo that are 
you know, uh, doing the heist. And they're just complete fuck up thieves, you know, that think they're awesome, but are complete amateurs. Ray Liotta plays the guy that's supposed to be protecting this game. Basically, dude, the pacing, the tension, the lighting, the sound, the performances, everything is exactly what it should be. I think this is a perfect scene. And it goes back to the way the film looks, though. I think the aesthetic of it, even the way that Scoot McNary wears like these pantyhose over his head. And, and instead of his nose being pushed straight down like Ben Mendelsohn's is, Scoot McNary's is like pushed to the side. So he looks ridiculous, not like comically ridiculous, but they don't look cool. They're even wearing like dishwashing gloves because they couldn't find just like latex gloves. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like these big yellow um, like dishwashing gloves. And it's just it is just a perfect scene, a perfect scene. And, and, and the way it looks, the lighting, there's this kind of ugly fluorescent lights and things, you know. But when you see it in context, it's not ugly. It's perfect. Dude, uh, Killing Them Softly is a fucking awesome movie. And I can't wait to go back and rewatch it. I'll probably do that here soon. Um, and if I have any if I change my feelings about anything, I'll let you know. I can't I can't imagine anything but loving it more because before I made this list, I watched clips of all these movies just just to make sure that I have the, the proper kind of memory, like the actual memory of these movies. And, yeah, this is exactly what I remembered. I cannot imagine loving this more. And I'm pretty sure if, if he didn't on air, he told me um, before or after. But Jake Bottolieri last week uh, brought up Killing Them Softly. And I think he said something along the lines of, you know, well, not everyone can be Andrew Dominic and making killing them softly or whatever, just in in terms of writing and, and how just how good it is. Uh, really great movie. You should definitely go check it out. And then uh, my fifth and final pick uh, for today is a movie that I have really, really tried to champion and get people to watch because though it did make its money back, it didn't do as well as I thought it would. And I have a feeling it only did as well as it did because of the cast. But this is uh, Nocturnal Animals from 2016. It was written and directed by Tom Ford. I'm pretty sure I watched this movie in 2018, 2019, something like that. I saw it a few years afterwards. Um, and it's, like I said, written and directed by Tom Ford based on Tony and Susan, uh, the uh, novel by Austin Wright. Uh, the cast, Amy Adams, Jake Gyllenhaal, Michael Shannon, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, uh, Isla Fisher, uh, Army Hammer, Laura Linney. I mean, dude, Michael Sheen. I mean, there's there's all kinds of people in this movie. And uh, it was released November 18th, 2016, with a budget of $22.5 million. And the box office it made was $32.4 million. So it made its money back. It made, you know, uh, t almost right under $10 million dollars. Uh, in in uh, in uh, above its cost, basically. Uh, and it's streaming on Netflix right now. And this is one of those movies where, uh, and here's the storytelling part with me. Uh, when, when I watched this movie, I watched it with my wife, Amanda. And once we finished it, we were both like, the fuck did we just watch? Not in like a, it's weird way, but more of like, a, man, I don't, I feel like I need to process this. And, and I don't know how she felt about it, but I know my brain, my, my gears were turning in my brain. And I was like, man, there's something to this. Like for sure. I, I have to think about this. And the more I thought about it, the more I started putting this thing together. God damn. This went from like uh, a, a four star movie, you know, to just like, or like maybe a three and a half or something to like a four and a half, almost goddamn perfect to me. Like I love 
this movie. And uh, it's about a wealthy art gallery owner who is haunted by her ex-husband's novel, a violent thriller she interprets as a symbolic revenge tale. Um, the uh, the wealthy art gallery owner is Amy Adams, and the ex-husband is Jake Gyllenhaal, who's a writer. Um, it Basically, the film bounces back and forth between reality with uh, Amy Adams and then uh, with her reading her ex-husband's book, and it plays out cinematically that book. And what's interesting is it tells this great story that's kind of like this thriller, you know? And uh, you're like, you're it's really intense, and you're just like, you know, really into this story, but much like the synopsis just said, where it's like the symbolic revenge tale, like, you also have to put together what would this story mean in reality like this is just a story that he made up but then you have like amy adams reading it it's like okay cool like how does this relate to her and in his relationship you know dude when you start going down that rabbit hole this movie is really complex and really interesting um this is one of my favorite movies it's not my favorite but it's one of my favorite movies on this list i think it's just really great this uh, the three reasons I have here kind of all work in tandem actually, um, and I, I think uh, I think one kind of leads to the other that leads to the other. So, uh, but also if you watch this movie, I feel like that will make a lot of sense because quite frankly, what I mention here, I don't think there's like a whole lot more to the movie than I mean, it looks great, it sounds great, like all of those things are just wins, okay? Um, but the first reason I would watch this is the car chase. There is a great moment where there is, again, going back to that, like, it's a thriller, but not an action movie. This sequence, excuse me, this sequence, which is a car chase, it is not an action car chase. This is um, much more on the thrill level. This is really building tension and trying to kind of build a, uh, a certain point in the narrative to give you some context for what's happening. Uh, but the car chase is really intense. They're on this long desert road. There are no turnoffs. There are no gas stations. And there's a truck, I believe it is, that pulls up. By, there are a few details might be off, but the, you'll get the point. Uh, there's a truck that is following Jake Gyllenhaal's car. And, and he's with his wife, who's not played by Amy Adams. Let me see if I can remember. Uh, I can't remember. I'm going to look this up real quick because... What's interesting is it's it's someone who also kind of has red hair and like like it's very clearly uh, meant to be patterned uh, after. Let's just say it was very good casting. That's what I'm trying to get at. Uh, what is her name? Uh, Isla Fisher. Yeah, I already said it earlier. I don't know why I didn't just look at my cast uh, in my notes, but uh, Isla Fisher plays the kind of what would be the Amy Adams character. And again, none of this actually happens in real life. I don't believe this is all just kind of uh, symbolic. But the car chase is great because they're chased by these like three or four people. And, um, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal gets a little bit more aggressive with them in terms of driving. And then, of course, you know, uh, things just kind of go south. And I'm pretty sure that Jake Gyllenhaal's car, um, I, th- I want to say it breaks down or something. But there's a reason why they stop. And, of course, this truck pulls up and uh, they basically start toying with them. And this sequence was so tense for me watching it. Uh, it, it, it just almost feels like a horror movie in this, in just in this moment, you know. But it's also one of those pivotal moments in the movie 
where you watch the movie and you look back at that sequence and you're like, fuck, that was really important to the story. I just think it's just really clever and really good writing the way that it's all put together. Um, but but it's not just the car chase. My second reason, I just I simply put the story because what ends up happening is Amy Adams is reading this novel, like I said, and we see it play out. And we get that great car chase sequence. But then we also get uh, these other moments that really start developing Jake Gyllenhaal's uh, character, uh, Tony. Actually, I think his name's something different, though, from the, for the book. Let me see what his name is here. Uh, Edward Sheffield. He's It's either Edward or Tony. I don't remember which one is which. Uh, hold on. Maybe I can uh, maybe I can see that now. So I think I think uh, I think Edward is actually the present time. And then uh, Tony is the is the other. I'm looking for one with Isla Fisher because that will tell me. Uh, I'm looking through like quotes and stuff. Anyways, I think Edward is the actual guy that wrote the book. So, anyways, uh, uh, Tony is the the character in the in the uh, in the sh- in the movie or the the book that we're watching in the movie. And uh, the, dude, the way that it develops his character is so great because we get the context of the Amy Adams stuff. Right. In in real world. Right. And then we actually watch what happens to Jake Gyllenhaal's character in the book. And you start to get draw parallels between what happens, you know, in what happens in reality and what happens in the book. Of course, these things in the book didn't happen. But what do they represent? You know, what are the things that uh, that caused Amy Adams and Jake Gyllenhaal to break up? And, you know. And so that's really great. There's also a sequence. Well, I don't. I'm trying really hard not to give stuff away, but it would be so easy for me to explain some of these things if I just like gave it away. You know, I'm trying really hard to respect you and let you watch these movies. Uh, but the the story is not even nearly as good without my third reason, which is the subtext and symbolism, which I talked about a little bit earlier. You know, the subtext and symbolism here is kind of the movie. It is the thing. As I've already said, I'm not going to beat a dead horse with this here. Um, but as I've already said, you know, there's uh, for every story beat that there is, you're getting something underneath the surface. I recognize that these three reasons kind of work so closely together. I could have probably fit them into one thing. I could also talk about how good the performances are, which I think they're great. I could talk about how great the direction is. Like definitely all of these things could be reasons to watch it. But the, the reason I love this movie, the reason I've recommended this to so many friends, you know, even some of my movie friends never got around to this. But a lot of a lot of my movie friends have seen it, but it's all of my non-movie friends. Like, I literally don't know anyone who's watched this that I did not recommend it to that is not a quote-unquote movie friend. Like, one of the people that are really in the know, my Indiana Film Critics Association guys and stuff like that. Like, they've seen this. But I don't know very many people outside of that group that have so everyone that I get to watch it I always try to say like dude you got to watch this and you got to understand that both of these stories work together so like we'll talk about it afterwards you know like that kind of a thing uh you should definitely check out nocturnal animals it definitely is a thinker again it's a great uh and somebody might be listening to this and be like I don't think it's a thinker maybe it's not for you it was for me and by that I just mean it's not that it's hard to follow it's just that my my gears were turning like the whole time and I find that really stimulating and interesting and so uh, the car chase the story and the subtext again they just kind of get broader and and, and bigger there Uh, but you should definitely check it out again it's on Netflix all of these are all of my choices are are there it's when Harry met Sally Michael Clayton let me in 
killing them softly and nocturnal animals. Definitely go check these out whenever you need something to watch. If you've seen them before, I strongly encourage you to go check them out again and see if that opinion's changed. And hey, if you do, or if you just generally agree or disagree with any of my thoughts, please uh, you know, hit me up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Medium Cool Pod and at MediumCoolPod on gmail.com. You can email us and uh, it will get to me. So uh, those are my five movies on Netflix you should watch. Uh, my storytelling was pretty light here, but I'm still, I already promised that would be in the title. So I'm just going to put it in the title. Um, there are a few stories in here, I guess. Uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, I'm going to come back for the outro and I will talk a little bit um, about uh, some of the shows that I have already completed that I've brought up before. There's one in particular I really want to share with you guys. Um, but uh, for now, I will be right back. fucking realize that like so uh, okay real, real quick thing uh, in our house i have this uh, air conditioning unit that's in the window because it gets hot as fuck where i record because i record basically in our attic we have like a finished attic but it's hot as shit up here and the only way to keep it cool is to have this air conditioning unit on now in the past i've just shut it off i've had a fan on me and i just kind of like live through it and survive it you know while uh, i record um, but today, I clearly forgot to do that, so my apologies if you can hear just kind of a droning uh, very quietly in the background. This new mic and the uh, the um, uh, mixing board and stuff I use should drown out some of it. But um, yeah, anyways, my apologies for that if there was some like annoying sound. The other thing I want to say real quick is uh, is uh, I actually got to finish the, the TV show Baskets on Hulu, and uh, I forgot to bring this up top. Uh, at the top of the show, but you should watch Baskets. It's a Zach Galifianakis uh, show. Uh, that is a show that uh, really fucking hits home, and it's funny. And Louis Anderson is the greatest. I don't remember if I've talked about this yet, but you have to watch it. If you don't know who Louis Anderson is, or if you do and you don't give a shit, trust me, that is one of my favorite characters I may have ever seen. All right, it is so great. Go watch Baskets on Hulu. Watch the five movies I gave you on Netflix. This is going to be awesome. But for now, I will see you next week. Love you guys. Thank you. Good night. Good luck. And take it easy. <laughs>